Corinthians chapter 6. We're coming near the end of our study in 1 Corinthians. We'll have to pick it up again at some later stage. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 7, but this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1 to 11. If you missed the other uh, sermons, you can pick them up on the website and uh, download them. Just one or two things before Lynn reads the passage to us. Uh, Rafa didn't mention that there are mince pies on sale at Christ Church Cafe at five rand each. Now, they've got 200, so you can't go now. You've got to go at the end of the sermon. So, okay? So, um, 200 mince pies, five rand each. They are delicious. So, uh, they are available afterwards. Secondly, just with the teen camp, do pray for that. We have over 200 uh, teenagers and leaders uh, in Mahalisburg from Monday to Friday. So do pray for them every day and for God's work and that many may be converted and that many may grow in their faith in Christ. So that's a wonderful thing, over 200 teenagers, leaders, and uh, let's pray that God will be a work, work amongst them in this coming week. Do check your cell phone, see that it's on silent. That will be a great, great help to me. And if you do have a small child or baby with you, we do have a cry room on the right-hand side. There's CCTV so that you can watch and hear the sermon, or you can just slip onto the veranda. There are speakers, and you can still hear the sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to 11. Thank you to Lynn. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of God. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you so much for the words of that last song that we are nothing and we have no hope in this life or the next without the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we know that our world and our culture despises the blood of Jesus. And yet, Lord, it is so precious to us that without the blood of Jesus, we are indeed lost. And so, Father, we pray that you may give us that mind as we think of our lives, as we think of our behavior, 
that we may understand that we are creatures of another kingdom and that Christ is at the heart of it. So will you draw us to Christ even as we study your word? And we pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. So here's a question. What do you do when you, as a Christian, are in conflict with, with another Christian? What do you do if one of your employees, who's a Christian, has stolen money from your business? What do you do if you and your spouse, spouse, you both Christians, you're having major struggles in your marriage, and there's even some talk of a possible divorce? What do you do? Now, those are real questions. Those are everyday questions. My guess is, my conservative guess, is that at least 50% of us in this room are facing one of those kinds of questions right now. Thankfully, the Bible gives us clear principles. The Bible gives us a clear framework. And the Bible gives us clear theology, a worldview, to help us deal with those things. And it comes out of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the passage. And I do hope you have your Bibles with you, either on your smartphone or as a Bible, so that you can follow what I am saying, because I'm trying to open up God's Word, and then I'll draw out some principles, some practical principles for all of us as we deal with this issue. Now, what is this passage all about? Now, just a little bit of background. We all know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you will know from the book of Corinth, um, from, uh, from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, that that they were quite a proud, quite an arrogant, quite a competitive, divisive group of people. Um, and uh, they were very concerned about their rights. They were very concerned about their freedoms in Christ. So you remember chapter 5, two weeks ago, Royden was looking at that. So the thinking in Corinth would be, if someone in the church is sleeping with their stepmother... I mean, who are we to judge? That's why Paul had to write chapter 5, because that was the attitude of the church. Who are we to judge? As we'll see here in chapter 6, the Corinthians were obsessed with two things, their rights and judging other people. And those two, it can be a toxic combination. It's almost two sides of the same coin. You know how we often say, we've all said it, we're in conflict with somebody, and we say, I'm fighting because I'm standing on my principles. But they are unbelievably stubborn. Isn't that what we say? You see the combination? Fighting for your rights and then judging other people. So Paul in chapter 4 calls that Christians in Corinth, they are Christians. They believe as they are in Christ, but he calls them arrogant Chapter 3, he says, you are babes in Christ. Even though you've been Christians for years and years, you are babes in Christ. You're infants. You haven't learned. You haven't grown up. So the issue here, as Lynn was reading this to us, was lawsuits amongst believers. Seems a kind of an arbitrary thing that Paul is talking about. One Christian taking another Christian to court. Now, we need to talk about that. And what do we do as Christians when there's conflict? But there's actually a, a very profound worldview behind it, which is actually the key 
to dealing with these kinds of issues amongst Christians. That's what he's talking about. So what's going on here? Well, let's have a look. Here's the story. In the church at Corinth, there were two Christians, two believers. They were, they were genuine Christians, but uh, quite, quite, quite immature, but they were Christians. Let's, for argument's sake, call called the one John and call the other Normsa. And uh, John and Normsa, um, have, uh, they started a small business. They met at church. They both found out that they've got certain skills. They said, let's start a partnership. Let's start a business. And they started a business, let's say, in IT security. And because there was so much hacking in Corinth, the business grew and went so well for 18 months. And then one Saturday night, Normsa was going through the books, the finances, and she discovered to her horror that there was some of the money missing, and it could only have been John. Monday morning, John goes to work. Normsa's not there. He's not quite sure why. Tuesday morning, Normsa's not there. He doesn't know yet that Normsa's found out. Wednesday morning, John gets a summons from the Randberg Magistrates Court in Corinth. And there's six charges, starting with fraud and misappropriation of funds. It's a scandal, because John and Normsa are well-known in Corinth. They're well-known people. They both got scholarships from Anglo. They both got the, the student of the year when they got their CAs. They're well-known, and by Thursday morning, on page six of the business day, there's a little article outlining this scandal. And it says right at the bottom of the article... John and Normsa belong, they're members of CCC, Christ Church Corinth. <laughs> the leaders in the church, it's the 8th of December, they say, yo, we've had such a tough year, let's just leave it. Let's just lie low, it'll pass, we can't have another scandal like chapter 5. Paul hears about it. Paul writes chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what an absolute disgrace to all of you. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such, such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Randberg magistrates caught in the Greek. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So let me paraphrase that. Paul says, verse 1, what an absolute disgrace. Verse 2, don't you know that Christians will join God to judge the whole world at the end of time? 
Verse 3, don't you know that Christians will even join God in judging the angels? Yes, there are angels. We believe in a supernatural God and a supernatural world that includes evil spirits and angels. You will, we will judge the angels. Verse 4, if, if we as God's children will join God in judgment of the world of the unbelievers, why on earth do you go to these same people, these unbelievers, to ask them to judge matters in some trivial, temporary matter. Verse 5 and 6, he says, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the gospel and the kingdom. It's a scandal to the Christian church that we believers go to unbelievers to deal with internal church conflict. So verse 7, Paul says to Nomsa, who has been defrauded, whether you win the case or not, it's already a defeat, a scandal for the gospel, that you've gone to Randburg Magistrates Court, why not just suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? And you, John, verse 8, you're even worse, much worse. Can you imagine, John, you are defrauding, you are misappropriating, stealing from your own sister in Christ. Have you ever, ever heard of that? Shame on you. So there we have the story. It's not complicated. Paul is appalled. Excuse the pun. What shame and disgrace that two Christians in the same church have a conflict and they have to go to unbelievers outside of the church to settle a matter and they are the very ones who with God will judge all people, even angels, at the end of time. All right, let's draw out some principles because it's dealing here with conflict, conflict amongst Christians. And we need to learn from this passage how to handle conflict amongst Christians because it happens every day. Because this church, you may not know this, is not for perfect people, no perfect people allowed. This church is filled from the rector upwards or downwards with sinners saved by grace. We all blow it, all of us, and uh, more often than we would like to admit. So let's have a look at the principles and framework God has given us. He's given us a framework. He's given us a clear framework. Now, obviously, I can't answer all the kind of questions we may have, but let's get the big picture right. Let's get the framework right, and then you can work out the details. Principle number one. Paul is dealing here in this passage with a matter between two Christians, two believers. He's not dealing here with a Christian who has conflict with a non-Christian. He's not dealing with that. He's dealing with a family matter. So he's not talking about what happens when you've been defrauded, when you've stolen by someone within the company, your neighbor, your partner who's not a Christian. That is not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about here our use or attitude towards the state or the laws of the land. Those will vary from country to country. And the Bible is quite clear in numerous places, including Romans 13, that we are to obey the state. We are, are, are to obey the laws of the land. We are to use the laws of the land. So the Bible is quite clear about that with one exception. If the laws of the land tell you something that you must or must not do that goes against God, in that case we obey God rather than men. But in 99.9% .9 of other cases we obey the laws of the land. We use the laws of the land. We respect those in authority. In fact, 
there are two or three cases in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul, um, who, uh, who was a Roman citizen, who appealed to Roman law for his rights. So his rights were being abused, and he appeals to Roman law to defend himself. So there's one in Acts 16, the other in Acts 24 is uh, he defends himself against false charges. Uh, King Festus uh, tries to concoct a deal, and uh, Paul, um, Paul rejects it, and Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. He appeals to the law of the land. He says, I have a right to be heard. I have a right to stand for my rights. And I appealed to Caesar. And that's why he ended up in Rome, where he went to prison and where he was killed. But the principle is clear, that it is not wrong for us as Christians to stand up for our rights, to, to, uh, to, to oppose injustice, to oppose evil or abuse or corruption or wickedness or bribery. It is right for us. It's our duty, actually, as Christians to oppose those things. And if necessary, go to court. That's what Paul did. His rights were being infringed. And so he appealed to Rome. He appealed to Caesar. So when we're looking at this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are not talking about our relationships with unbelievers. We are not talking about the rights we may have within our country in terms of law. Christians are not doormats. So let's remember that. The second principle here is that it would seem from the chapters we've been looking at last time, Royden chapter 5, chapter 6, but previous chapters, that the Corinthian Christians were very slow in learning that when you are in Christ, it not only affects your heart, your mind, your Sunday mornings, it affects everything. It's your lifestyle, it's your behavior, it's how you live. It affects everything. And they kind of opposed that, if anything. They didn't like the fact that I need to change my behavior in terms, of, in terms of how I treat other people, in terms of my marriage, in terms of sex, in terms of man, money. So there were two particular problems that we picked up in chapter 5 and 6. The one is sex. So chapter 5, verse 1, one of the church members, imagine this, was sleeping with his father's wife. So his mother had either died or got divorced. His father had remarried, and he was sleeping with his father's wife. Imagine that. Chapter 6, verse 15. Some of them were sleeping with prostitutes in the church. Now, they were temple prostitutes, so bar worship included. Your worship included um, prostitution, cult prostitutes, but it's still prostitution. Chapter 6, verse 9, Paul talks about the sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals. So there was a real problem in the church in Corinth. That was their culture. That was the Greek culture. You just do as you please. It doesn't matter how you live. You are in Christ. You're free in Christ. And they didn't understand that when you come to Christ, Christ will change you. So the Greek author Demos, this was the culture said, mistresses we keep for pleasure, concubines for daily needs, wives for legitimate children. 
So that was the thinking of the culture, the Greek-Roman culture. It was godless. It was immoral. That's why in the end the Roman-Greek culture collapsed because of the immorality at its heart. And the problem for Paul was that some of the Christians in Corinth had become Christians, but they didn't realize there's a new lifestyle, and it's a better lifestyle. Sex is great, but it's for one man and one woman in marriage. You no longer belong to that old culture, that old way of life. You are no longer primarily a Greek. You are firstly and primarily a Christian. When it came to money, the Greeks were the original, forgive me, the, Amer- the, the original Americans. Sue them. That's what you do. This is the original Chicago, New York. These are the original wolves from Wall Street. And some of them had become Christians. And so they were suing each other left, right, and center. It was a pastime. I googled the word litigation for some quotes. The one quote was, which is a very good one, a bad agreement is better than a good lawsuit. Second one was, I was only ruined twice. Once when I lost a lawsuit, once when I won one. You always lose. So Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, the original wolves of Wall Street, some of them who had become Christians, if you, if you have a problem, you have a right to go to court. There's theft, there's injustice, there's abuse, there's crime, there's corruption. But when it comes to other Christians, there's another way. Now notice, he's talking about other Christians. Here in South Africa, 80% of people in South Africa call themselves Christians. But they're not Christians. All right, he's talking about real Christians, born-again Christians, real Christians. That's what he's talking about. All right, third principle. What do we do when there is conflict amongst genuine Christians? Well, let's have a look at the principles. Matthew 5 and then Matthew 18. Turn with me to Matthew 5. What do we do? Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when you've got a problem with someone who's a believer, don't go to the court. This is what you ought to do. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Here's the teaching of Jesus. Have you got it there? Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, so they were still going to the temple to offer their gifts to God, and they remember that your brother has something against you, So you have sinned against your brother. Your brother's got something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's quite interesting. Before you even worship God, you must sort out this matter. You've sinned against your brother. You must go to your brother and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Then Matthew 18, you have it the other way around. Your brother has sinned against you. So let's have a look at that one. Matthew 18, same words of Jesus. Matthew 18, verse 15. So remember those two. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. They're critical. Absolutely critical. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. 
if your brother sins against you, so notice the other one was you sin against your brother, here you sin against your brother. But in both cases, the, the obligation is on you to take the first step. We don't like that. I don't like that. But that's what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice the sequence here. There's steps here. The first step is you've, you've got a problem that your brother, your sister's done something which has offended you, hurt you, caused a big problem. You go to them and you speak to them one-to-one. First step. Now, my dear friends, for the most part, we forget that, don't we? We tell other people. We send around emails. We speak to this colleague, this friend, this family member. And then we got six, eight, ten people involved, and we haven't spoken to the person. No wonder there's a mess. So sometimes I'll have someone coming to me from the church or from the staff. They've got a problem. They'll give me a long list of things, and I'll say to them, have you spoken to the person? They say no. Well, I say, well, that's the first thing we have to do. Go and talk to the person one-to-one. They say, well, I don't want to do that. I say, well, that's how it is. That's how we start. And if it doesn't work out, take someone with you, one or two others with you. Try and see if you can start resolving the issue. Try and see if there's give. And if that doesn't work, come back to me. Now, when there's no repentance, there's no remorse, the person is totally adamant, they've clearly done something wrong, there's no repentance, there's no remorse, we've gone through a whole procedure, perhaps I've drawn in one or two other leaders in the church, Well, Paul says, Jesus says, not Paul, Jesus says, well, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which means start treating him like a non-Christian. Now, it's not always simple. I understand that. But it gives us guidelines. So where the person has done wrong, you talk to them one-to-one. You talk to them with someone else. You then go to the church, probably the leaders of the church. They try and resolve it. If you still can't resolve it, well then perhaps, if the circumstances are such, you may need to take them to court because they're an unbeliever. So God gives us principles. That's how we deal with conflict. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, the man who slept with his father's wife There was obviously no repentance. There was no remorse at all. He wouldn't admit anything. He wouldn't even engage in the whole thing. Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. So there comes a point in time where you discover this person probably isn't a Christian. By the way, they behave. Well, then purge the person from among you. Now, let me make some practical comments. As I said, the critical first step is one-to-one. It really is. And folks, that is where we blow it, all of us. Maybe your spouse, maybe your children, maybe 
people in the family, maybe your workplace, in the classroom, and it's another Christian, but it can even be a non-Christian. Go and talk to the person one-to-one. And more often than not, you will find that there's been some misunderstanding anyway. And it's resolved. Rather than you telling a whole lot of people, you getting a whole group of people excited and, and uh, caught up in the whole thing, and you haven't done the first step, which is talk to the person and say, can you help me understand why you did this or what, why you said this? It is the most basic principle, and all of us blow it from time to time, don't we? Second point, which I really learned from Jerry. We were involved in a very complicated thing, and at some point Jerry said, Jerry Gulo, one of our wardens who we love, Jerry said, stop the emails. Stop the emails. Isn't that often the problem? You don't talk to the person, you send an email. This long email. And then you get another email back that's that long. And then you send your email, their email to your friend, and they send a long email. And then someone else sends a long email. And then it is so difficult to undo all these emails now. If you had sat with a person and they said, you said this, and you say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I mean, you can never give the nuance in an email. You can't. So my dear friends, stop the emails. I mean, social media emails are good for information, basic stuff. But if there's a contentious issue, pick up the phone. Say, can we meet? If you can't meet, let's talk on the phone. Let's Skype. Talk. Stop the emails. Number three, if you have a, you've gone through this whole process, you've been talking, discussing, there comes a point you have to write, write a hard letter, a hard email, a tough letter. Write it and then email it to yourself. Okay? And then the next day, read it. And chances are you're going to change it. Because you wrote that in great emotion. You are furious. The next morning when you reread your email, at the very least you'll take out some of the adjectives and adverbs. (laughs) And you'll cross out... Delete some of the thing. Isn't that right? If it's a tough email, send it to yourself. Read it the next morning. Just, just one last comment before we close off. You may say to me, yeah, we have Matthew 5, Matthew 18. Go to the church. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't go to the law courts. When does this happen at Christ Church Midrand? Let me tell you, every day. Our denomination, called Reach South Africa, we have structures so that we don't have to go to law courts. Because Christians sometimes make, Christians often make mistakes and blow it. So we have a system. We have bishops. We have a chancellor. The chancellor is our legal man. We have executive members. We have trustee members. So that when there is conflict in churches, we can resolve it. You've got wise men and women to help resolve issues. Here in our church, we've got a rector, we've got clergy, we've got a church council, we've got church wardens. When there are issues, we deal with them so that we don't have to go to court, that we deal with them as Christians. So that is a great duty for Christian leaders, to keep the thing together. I was thinking about this. How much time do I spend on this? 
you'll be surprised. I probably spend something like 20, 25% of my week. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's better. Average 20, 25% of my week on these things. To prevent conflict and then to deal with conflict. So that we don't embarrass the church or the gospel. So that we keep united. In fact, one of the vows you make, so we got four ministers, David, Eddie, Royden, myself, we made vows before God. One of the vows, the question was this, will you maintain and promote to the best of your ability quietness, peace, and love among all Christian people, especially among those who are committed to your care? That's the question asked to us. And we answer, I will the Lord being my helper. And I can tell you, without the Lord, we sunk. But that's all our duty, isn't it? Not just my duty. God has given us principles. Let me close off with a worldview. There's a key phrase here that recurs. So go go back to your Bibles, back to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Where are we? 1 Corinthians 6. There's a key phrase that recurs six times in chapter 6. I wonder if you saw it. The phrase is, do you not know? Chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul is giving us a theology. He's giving us a worldview. He's saying to these Christians in Corinth, do you not know? Do you not understand that this world is not your home? Do you not understand we are refugees, we are strangers, we are exiled, we belong to another world, to another kingdom? Don't you understand that this life is temporary, the things of this world are temporary, it's not our home? Don't you understand that if we belong to Christ and his kingdom, we have different values? We have different ways of doing things. Don't you understand that that you don't always have to win in this world, because this world isn't all there is? Don't you understand that the money, the temporary things of this world are trivial. Naked we come, naked we go. Don't you understand that? Don't you understand you belong to Christ? You, you, you belong to his kingdom, which means that sometimes you don't have to win. Don't you understand that, that when there's conflict and perhaps you only 5% of the cause, you apologize. Why? Because we're Christians. Don't you understand that love covers a multitude of sins? My sin, their sin. Don't you understand that? Don't you understand that Christ died for us when we were enemies of God? Don't you understand that God forgave us when we were sinners and strangers and we hated him? Don't you understand that? Doesn't that give you a new perspective? The things of this world, important as they may be, in terms of eternity, they are trivial. There are times, don't you understand, where it's better to be defrauded. It's better to suffer wrong rather than damage the gospel. It's a different perspective, isn't it? 
Life isn't just what you can see and touch and smell and count. It's much more than that. And so we're not going to spend a great deal of energy fighting over the name, the courtyard cafe. I would have. (laughs) But at the end of the day, is it worth the energy? No. Let's spend our energy on the kingdom and the gospel. Notice in closing, there's a great warning and there's a wonderful promise. First, the warning. Paul says, if you don't understand these things, if you don't understand, you belong to another kingdom. If you continue in your unrighteousness, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, who is those, verse 1 to 8, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a grave warning, my friends. You carry on in your godless ways. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, we are all here, all of us. Every single one of us are here. And if you carry on in your godless ways, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor will I. But here's the great promise, verse 11, and some, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Your sin is not the end of the road. Your sin is not the final story. No, there's another story. There's a promise of atonement. There's grace for the graceless. There's mercy for the miserable. There's forgiveness for the unforgivable. That's you and me. And so we love because he first loved us. We forgive because he forgave us. We show mercy because he poured mercy on us. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And such were some of you. Well, here at Christ Church Midran, such were all of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. So the question is this. Which kingdom do you belong to? That's the basic question. Which kingdom are you going to live for? And which kingdom are you going to die for? It's one or the other. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You may want to tell God where you are. Father, as we read that passage, we are so, so aware that Paul is not only talking about Corinth. He's talking about Gauteng, he's talking about Joburg, he's talking about Midrand. He's talking about us. Father, will you convict us of our sin? And then, Father, will you forgive us when we repent? And then will you help us by your Spirit to live differently? Father, we need wisdom because it's not always that simple. 
we really do need wisdom. And we do need your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for the clarity of the principles and the framework that you've given us. And so will you, by your Spirit, empowering us, filling us, help us to live godly lives. So, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to serve you and live for you. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.